Good to see you this morning. Glad to be with you this morning. It's really good to see Peggy this morning. Peggy's not a guest, but it's good to see you. I know she loves to be singled out and embarrassed. I've uh, been praying for Peggy. In fact, don't look at the person sitting beside you right now, but just know the person who's sitting on either side of you has been going through some things this week. Okay? So be able to get together and worship God is a really great blessing. We're glad that we're together. If you're a guest of ours, we're especially honored to have you with us today. We are back in our story this morning of David. I thought that this was going to be the last David sermon in this series. I think next week we'll actually wrap it up. But we're talking about David again today. And uh, I want to remind you this morning of something that you really don't need reminded of. You don't need to be reminded of this, but I'm going to remind you of it anyway. And that is, life very rarely goes as planned. Does anyone notice that? Anyone agree with me on that? Very rarely does life go exactly as planned. Now, plans are good. No plan to work. Work the plan. I am married to a planner. Martha is a, just an incredible planner, which is a good thing because I'm not. But the reality is, and you know this, the reality is that reality always trumps our plans. I mean, we can plan how things are going to go, but then things happen. You know, sometimes something happens as my fault. Something that we do. Sometimes something happens as someone else is doing. Sometimes something happens and really nobody does anything. Just, you know, life happens and our plans get changed. And at the end of the day, what that means is when our plans get changed, what that means is sometimes our dreams get changed. And that sometimes our dreams don't come true. In fact, sometimes it appears that our dreams can't come true. And what that means is maybe the two of you won't live happily ever after. Maybe you'll never walk your daughter down the aisle. Maybe you'll never have children. Maybe that prodigal son or that prodigal daughter will never come walking back down your road no matter how faithfully you watch and wait. Maybe you'll never get that job. Maybe your first marriage ends and your second marriage starts feeling a lot like your first marriage. And maybe the dream job turns out to be less than a dream job. Maybe you'll never get in that school. Maybe money's always going to be a problem. And the thing that happens when our dreams die and we see our dreams die, there's something within us, something that kind of, just a natural reaction to get very anxious and to even get angry. And to panic a little bit. Because after all, didn't God kind of promise us? I mean, doesn't God sort of owe us? Well, we've done it the right way. We raised them right. We worked hard. We were honest. We were up front. You know, we did all the right things. Isn't there some kind of cause and effect here? Doesn't God kind of owe me? Because I've done it the way he's asked me to do it. But we see our dreams that are not coming true. Look around, everybody else's dreams seem to be coming true. You look at social media, their dreams are coming true. But ours aren't. This morning, we're going to answer the question that David's life sort of answers for us. And that is, what do you do when your dreams don't come true? More than that, what do you do when your dreams can't come true? 
We've already seen in the life of David because of, you know, the early part of his life, especially because of crazy King Saul, David is on the run for his life. Um, he's living in caves. He's living in the wilderness. He never would have planned that for himself. That certainly wasn't what David planned for his life. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about a gigantic mistake that David made probably in his early 20s. He was isolated. He was afraid. And because of those circumstances, he takes matters into his own hands and has this gigantic mistake. Uh, and because of that, a lot of innocent people die. Last week, we talked about David finally becoming king over all of Israel. David is finally king. I want you to fast forward 22 years. It's 22 years now into David's reign as king. He's not the young guy anymore. He's not the cool kid who killed Goliath. Now he's established. He is King David. And he is about to make another mistake that is going to haunt him the rest of his life. It's really going to haunt Israel for, for centuries, really. And also, again, a lot of innocent people are going to die. And it's going to cause David's dreams in this season of his life to be crushed. You know the story really well. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's the spring of the year, the time when armies go out to war. David's army is at war, but David's not with them. David remains in Jerusalem. The text doesn't exactly tell us why. Maybe, maybe he was, felt like he was too old. Maybe he felt like the army didn't really need him. But for whatever reasons, David remains in Jerusalem. He's on the roof of his palace one afternoon. He looks across some other roofs, and he sees a woman taking a bath. He should have looked away, but he didn't look away. Instead, he asked a servant, who is that woman taking a bath on that rooftop? And the servant says, she is the wife, 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 wife. <laughs> She's the wife of your servant Uriah. Her name is Bathsheba. David tells the servant, I want you to go get her. Well, the servant does because the servant can't tell David no. He can't tell the king no. Bathsheba comes to David, comes to the palace because she can't tell the king no. And David sleeps with a woman who's not his wife. He has adultery, commits adultery with Bathsheba, sends her away. Shortly thereafter, Bathsheba sends a message back to David. We got a problem. I'm pregnant. And David sees this as a problem that he can handle. He's the king. I can fix this. I know what we'll do. So he calls Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, back from battle, back to Jerusalem, under the guise of telling him how the battle is going. Uriah gives his report, and David says, Listen, while you're, since you're in town, I want you to go home. I want you to spend the night with your wife. But Uriah is much more noble in all of this than David is. And Uriah does not go home. Instead, he spends the night outside the palace gates. And David learns of this. And he calls Uriah back in and said, why didn't you go home and be with your wife? And Uriah's response is, I can't in good conscience. My fellow soldiers are out on the battlefield. They're dying. How can I have a night of comfort here at home with my wife? So David resorts to plan B. He gets Uriah drunk. And he says again, go home, be with your wife. But again, Uriah is too noble 
He says, I'm not going to disrespect my fellow soldiers that way. And he doesn't go home. He doesn't spend the night with Bathsheba. So David resorts to plan C. He sends Uriah back to battle. He sends a messenger to, uh, to Joab, who is uh, David's general. He said, I want you to put Uriah and his bodyguards at the front lines. I want you to put them in the thick of the battle. When the battle is at the fiercest, when things are the most intense, I want you to withdraw from Uriah and his bodyguards. And Joab does exactly what David tells him to do because Joab can't tell the king no. And Uriah is killed in battle, but really, David hung him out to dry. David made sure that Uriah would be killed in battle. In effect, David murders, or certainly has a hand in the killing of Uriah. And Uriah and his bodyguards, and to a certain extent Bathsheba, are going to be the first casualties to this sin that David commits. They certainly will not be the last Here's one of the, one, what I want you to be sure that you don't miss this morning. This is really whether you're a Christian or not. I mean, whether you're a religious person or not. I want you to be sure you understand something. Every sin comes prepackaged with a consequence. You cannot escape it. Every single sin comes prepackaged with a penalty. David was not where he should have been. He was looking at something he should not have been looking at. He took something that he had no business taking. He took another man's wife. And for the rest of his life, he would pay. For the rest of their lives, a lot of people would pay for this sin. Some with their lives. And because of this sin, David's dreams for this season of his life aren't going to come true. Because of this sin, David's dreams really for Israel aren't going to come true. And in a real sense, because of this sin, some of God's dreams for David and for his people aren't going to come true either. God gives us the gift of choice. It's a great blessing from God. We have the gift of choice. God does not give us the privilege of deciding the outcome of those choices. And I want to be sure you understand that. We get to do whatever we want to do. But we don't get to choose the outcome of our actions. Now, I want to step out of our story this morning for just a few minutes. And I want to talk about something that I have been asked to talk about. But I want to preface my comments, and really what I want to preface my comments with, I think is just as important, maybe even more important, than the comments I want to make. In other words, my introduction coming up here is, I think, just as important as the points I want to make are. When I was in Nashville a few weeks ago, one of the speakers there showed a, a picture that I thought was a great image. He went a little bit different direction with it, but I'm kind of stealing his graphic uh, this morning to, to make my point. Uh, what's wrong with that picture? It's not a trick question, by the way. It's obvious, right? What's wrong with that bicycle? It's got square wheels. Somebody put square wheels on, on the bicycle. Um, here's another picture of what a bicycle with square wheels might look like. You know, here's a fellow, he's dressed for a bike ride. It looks like he is ready for speed, he's ready for excitement. But you know, if those were the wheels on his bicycle, his bike ride's not going to turn out like it looks like he thinks it is. Because here's, here's kind of my introductory point. 
When you put square wheels on a bicycle, a whole lot of other decisions are immediately and permanently made. When you put square wheels on your bike, you've already decided how fast you're going to go, which is not very fast. You've already decided there's going to be a balance problem. You've already decided where you're going to ride that bicycle. You don't have to even think about those things anymore. That's been decided because you put square wheels on your bicycle. By the way, it can be done. Here's a picture of somebody riding a square-wheeled bicycle. Notice, he's not going very fast. He's got three wheels to solve the balance thing. And he's only going down a very specific path. That's like 30 feet long. And that path was meticulously designed to match the square wheels. He can't ride it anywhere else. That's the only path he can go down. Why? Because somebody put square wheels on his bike. And if he wanted to go further, if he wanted to go faster, if he wanted to have more of an exciting bike ride, if he wanted to, to, to ride a bike the way it was intended to be ridden, He'd have to change the wheels on his bike. Now, if Christianity is the bike, Jesus is the bike, what makes it go? What are the wheels on our bike? I think you read the New Testament and you gotta to come to the conclusion, it's gotta be love. Love, you know, kinda of makes the world go around. Well, love makes the bike go around too, in my analogy here. And if we want our journey, our spiritual journey to go further and faster and more enjoyable, more exciting, if we want our life to be lived the way God intended our lives to be lived, we've got to have wheels of love on our bike. We've got to round out those corners. Because once we put wheels of love on our bike, so many other decisions are already made. One of the most famous chapters in all the Bible is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The Apostle Paul talks about what real love looks like. He says, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes always perseveres. Love never fails. We all know that, that scripture, but we're so familiar with it that we just kind of get us 1 Corinthians 13, we hear it at weddings, No, we just kind of brush over it. I mean, think of it this way. How many of you ever worked with children? Little children? You know, maybe in the back, back here you've taught school or preschool or you had kids around. You know, you're working with a bunch of five-year-olds and little Johnny comes up to Susie and Susie's playing with a toy and Johnny grabs it out of her hand. What do we tell little Johnny? No, Johnny, wait, wait, wait. You, you have to share. We have to share. You have to share your toys. You can't just take that. And Johnny says, well, well, Susie's stupid. No, no, Johnny, you can't talk that way. No, we have to be kind. We have to use our kind words. We have to use kind words. That's how we treat children, right? Rightfully so. Then we grow up and we become adults and we don't always share very well. I want things my way. And if I don't get my way, there's going to be a problem. And we don't always use kind, gentle words when we deal with other people. But love is patient. Love is kind. It's not easily angered. 
It's not proud. It's not rude. It always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. All those things that love always does. Those things that love never does. If the wheels of our bicycle are rounded into love, so many other decisions are already made. When something happens and I've got to respond to it, when something happens and I've got to come up with some kind of a reaction, if my default setting is, love is patient. Love is kind. What am I going to say? What am I going to do? How am I going to treat that person? Well, I'm going to start with, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not easily angered. All of those things that the Bible tells me love is and love isn't. Okay, that's my setup, okay? That's my introduction. Which again, I think is just as important, maybe more important than, than what I want to talk about next. I want you to remember, love is patient and love is kind. This morning I want to talk to you about sin. And specifically I want to talk to you about sexual sin. And it seemed like the story of David and Bathsheba was kind of a logical place to have this conversation. We live in a culture that has normalized, embraced, even praised sexual sin. Now, I don't know if things are worse today than they've ever been. I, I, you know, I hear that. I don't know. You know. Things were pretty bad in Abraham's time. Things looked pretty bad in David's time. Things looked pretty dark in the first century. You know, the 60s, they were pretty rough too. You know, sin has always been, sexual sin has always been a pervasive problem. And it's always been so incredibly destructive. And I know it's very difficult for Christians not to be influenced by the culture that we live in, but to normalize and to rationalize and to kind of brush away any kind of sin, including sexual sin, it's a very dangerous place to be. And that's exactly what the world is asking us to do. The world is asking you to agree with them that they're looking at pornography is not that big a deal. Nobody gets hurt. That adultery, you know, sleeping around, whatever you want to call it, it's not that big a deal. Everybody does it. That the homosexual lifestyle, it's not a sin. It's not that big a deal. It doesn't matter. But the Bible calls those lifestyles and those practices sin. And the Bible says sin is a big deal. If it's sin, it's a big deal. It was sin that caused Jesus to, to become a little lower than the angels, to leave heaven and come here and live on earth. It was sin that sent Jesus to the cross. Not his sin, he was sinless. But our sin. So, is it a sin for me to look at another woman lustfully? Well, in the Old Testament, Job said, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Then in the New Testament, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust in his eyes has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then Paul says in Colossians 3, so put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual sin, impurity, lust, and shameful desires. Paul says don't fill your head with that. Don't fill your heart with those things. Don't fill your mind with those things. And then in the book of Philippians, Paul says, instead, fill your hearts with this. Fix your thoughts on what's true and honorable and right. Think about things that are pure and lovely and admirable. 
Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. By the way, when it comes to pornography, you don't have to, you don't have to listen to me. You don't have to listen to a preacher. Even if you're not a religious person, even if you're just here because somebody drugged you here today, you know, you don't read the Bible, you don't care about the Bible, you don't have to listen to a preacher when it comes to, is it right? Is it wrong? Is it, is it helpful? Is it, you know, destructive? You go find any family therapist, any marriage counselor that's been doing it more than a month, and they will tell you story after story after story of homes and families and marriages that have been devastated because of a husband's addiction to pornography. It is so incredibly destructive. David's problem began when he looked at something that he shouldn't have looked at. Should have looked away, but he didn't. His problem continued when he acted upon those sexual urges and slept with a woman who was not his wife. Again, the Word of God is really clear on this. I mean, there, there's no ambiguity here. Sex outside the bonds of marriage is sinful. It's what Scripture says. Those are God's words. Those aren't mine. You know, on, on a tablet of stone, when space was really at a premium and God didn't have a whole lot of room to write a whole lot of things, one of the things He wrote was, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Hebrews chapter 13 in the New Testament, the writer says, Give honor to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage. God will surely judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writing to the church in Corinth who had all kinds of problems. Don't you know that those who do wrong will have no share in the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourself. And he might have also said, Don't let the culture fool you either. Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin, who are idol worshipers, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexuals, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, abusers, and swindlers, none of these will have a share in the kingdom of God. How serious do you think God takes sin? God takes sin very seriously. And Paul was going to say, but you know what? You can't do that on your own. In fact, the very next verse, Paul says, there was a time when some of you were just like that. that. That was you. Some of you were just like this. But now your sins have been washed away. And you've been set apart for God. You've been made right with God because of what the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God has done for you. Paul says it's by the blood of Christ, through the power of the cross, that Jesus has delivered us, that we have been made right through the redemptive power of Jesus. And then I want to say one more thing about something that Paul mentions here in 1 Corinthians. And I want to talk about it because we need to talk about it. And I want to talk about it because our culture speaks so loudly toward it. And that's the homosexual lifestyle. Again, what's the Word of God say? Not me. What's God say? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, on the screen here behind me. Paul claims homosexual lifestyle is, is part of those, uh, part of that list that will not uh, share in the kingdom. In the Old Testament, Leviticus 18, do not practice homosexuality. It is a detestable sin. New Testament, Romans chapter 1 talks about God's wrath and what will invoke God's wrath. 
Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with, each, with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. And then Paul tells his friend Timothy this in 1 Timothy 1. We know these laws are good when they're used as God intended, but they were not made for people who do what's right. They're for people who are disobedient and rebellious, who are ungodly and sinful, who consider nothing sacred and defile what is holy, who murder their mother, their father or mother or other people. These laws are for people who are sexually immoral, for homosexuals and slave traders, for liars and oathbreakers, and for those who do anything else that contradicts the right teaching that comes from the glorious good news entrusted to me by our blessed God. The Bible is really clear. Homosexuality is a sin. But that's not what our culture says. You know what we're known for? Not us personally, but you know what Christians are known for in the world? We are pro-life and we hate gays. That's what we're known for. My daughter told me a while back, said, Dad, you have to understand something. When you're talking about uh, homosexuals, to my generation, from my generation, when you speak against homosexuality, you might as well be speaking against blacks or Hispanics or handicapped children. Because we just see it as hate. Her generation. It's not hate. It's, it's not hate. But it is sin. God calls it sin. Remember, love is patient, love is kind. But God tells us where sin leads. And I know how God feels about sin. He hates it. Sin cost Jesus his life. We can't condone sin. Jesus didn't. We can't turn a blind eye to sin. Jesus didn't. I don't want to read some posting on social media about someone's sinful lifestyle and tell them how happy I am for them. I don't want to congratulate someone on their sinful choices, and I don't want you congratulating me on any of my sinful choices either. I hope you love me enough to help me. And with the wheels of love on my bike, I want to love people enough to help them not to sin. And I want you to do the same for me. Now, some of you have heard me say this before, the old saying, love the sinner, hate the sin. Well, more accurately, that would be, love the sinner, hate my sin. Because I'm a sinner too. And so are you. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When I went to North Florida to preach, one of the very first weeks I was there, I had an older gentleman approach me and he said, I hope you preach on sin. I want to hear some good sermons on sin. We don't hear enough sermons on sin. I want you to come down hard on sin. I said, well, if you'll tell me what sin you're struggling with right now, I'll preach on it next week. Which, by the way, was not very kind. He looked at me like I'd slapped his wife. I don't want you to talk about my sin. You know, we don't want to talk about our sin. We want to talk about everybody else's sin. Don't talk about what I've got a problem with. Talk about what everybody else is dealing with. Because it's wrong. It's sinful. You know what it really comes down to? 
Uh, we could go round and round and talk about these things for a long time, but we you know what it really comes down to, I think? Am I willing to surrender my will to God's will? When you cut through everything else, it comes down to, am I willing to submit my life to God's will? If God said, I want you to do this, am I willing to do it? Am I willing to trust God when God says, I don't want you to do this, even if I'm conflicted? Even if I don't have all the my, my questions answered? Even if my, my human nature is pulling me in a different direction? If God said, don't do it, do I trust Him enough to believe that God knows what He's doing? That God knows more than I know? That God can see a lot farther down that road? And that the pleasures of sin for a season are going to end up in heartache. Do I trust God to have my very best in mind? God desperately wants to bless us. He wants the best for us. Am I willing to, to read God's Word? I'm a smart guy. You're smart. Read it for yourself. Are you willing to submit to God's Word? Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Romans chapter 12, Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, your spiritual act of worship. And he goes on to say, don't conform any longer to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And you can test and know God's good, perfect, pleasing will. Am I willing to deny myself to take up my cross and follow Jesus? Am I willing to offer my body as a living sacrifice? Am I going to conform to the world? Or am I going to allow the Holy Spirit to transform me? And by the way, I'm still very much a work in progress, as are you. It would be very arrogant for any of us to stand up here and say we've got it all figured out. But I really do want to try to live my life in submission to the will of God. All this week, I have been praying about this sermon. I have been praying that I could speak the truth. And I have been praying that I could speak it in love. And I have prayed that you would hear graciously with the wheels of love on your bicycle as well. Love is patient. Love is kind. I prayed for that this week. I've also prayed for repentance. You know, God's commands aren't random. They're not arbitrary. God doesn't tell us to do something just to see if we'll do it or not. Every commandment, every direction from God is for our benefit. Because again, God knows what He's doing. Jesus came that we might have life and have it to the full. David's sexual sin would cost him dearly. For the next 18 years, right until God called him home, David would pay for that sin. And a whole lot of other people would pay for that sin as well. Remember, the consequences are bound to the, to the choice. We get to choose what we want to do. We do not get to choose the consequence of our actions. And God knows so much better than we know where sin leads. God wants to save us from broken hearts, broken lives. But just like David, there is really good news in all this. 
There is hope. There is repentance and there is forgiveness. I keep telling you one of the great things about the story of David is we don't just get the narrative. We get to kind of get an insight to what David is thinking and what David is feeling. And David's going to share another glimpse into his heart with his writing. Right after the whole Bathsheba incident, David's going to sit down and he's going to write about it. Right after the prophet Nathan comes and tells David, you, David, are the man. David, you have committed a terrible sin. David's going to sit down and he's going to write about it. Psalm 51, written shortly after the Bathsheba incident, David writes this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Then a few verses later, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then with the guilt of that sin fresh on his mind, David wraps up this psalm this way. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David was such a great writer. And it's such a blessing to be able to get a glimpse of his heart. And what he writes in Psalm 51 is written from the heart of a sinner who is chasing the heart of God. Love Psalm 51. David pours out his heart before God. And he asks for forgiveness. He repents before God. He says, my heart's broken, but God's faithful. And David learns, he's already learned, what it means to repent. God wants our hearts. He wants us to repent not so he can, not so he can destroy us, but so that he can save us. Because he loves us. And when we come to see repentance as something more than just some word at church that makes us feel guilty or ashamed, when we come to see repentance as this beautiful gift that God offers, it becomes something really beautiful. And something wonderful. And something very healthy. It's not the dark command from an angry God to repent. It's an invitation. Come back. Come home. Jesus died so that we could repent. He died to set us free from sin. All sin. No more shame. No more guilt. That's the cross. That's grace. That's Jesus. This morning, if you need to repent, if you need to come home, if you need to come back, if you need to come closer, this morning, if you need to repent, Jesus is still waiting. Let's stand and sing.